everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14. So, people currently listening to comedy podcasts, and people listening to self-help podcasts, and people listening to true crime podcasts, who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts. The point is, everyone, new and existing customers, ask how to get the new iPhone 14 on us with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply. From the creators of Relevant Magazine, this is The Relevant Podcast. Friday, April 17th, year is 2020, and you're listening to The Relevant Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Huckabee. I am in my home in Nashville, Tennessee. Meanwhile, down there in Orlando, Florida, he is watching all of his Quibi stocks soar. It is our <laughs> friend and our illustrious producer, Chandler Strang. Hello. And then up there in Loveland, Virginia, he has already binged everything on Quibi. He has seen it. He's a he's a Quibi pro, a Quibi veteran at this point. It's been out for like four days. It's our friend Jesse Carey. To be fair to the Quibi people, short videos meant to be watched on your phone sounded like a good idea. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> One of those things that was uh, that was like on paper. A really on smart paper, movie, it was you know? perfect. Yeah, man. it looked good. It looked perfect. good. 2019. People are moving to the phone. They're on the go. They're too busy. They don't want to be home, stuck in on a couch. <laughs> what they, could they possibly be, change? What could, ingrained what media perfect- consumption <laughs> habits that everyone has because of life on the move, on the run, and in commutes. People only want to watch phones anymore. They don't spend any time at home. Let's launch a streaming service just for that. They're on the what subway. Possibly, they're, in line, they're at Starbucks. They want to be. They, they don't want to. They want to watch short five minutes. Shows, yeah, exactly. What could possibly disrupt this perfect business model? What could possibly do it? What do you think? What do you think is happening in the Quibi and Quibi HQ? Right. Well, nothing's happening in Quibi HQ, yeah. presumably, yeah. which is like a tech, you know, a Silicon Valley. Uh, I'm sure, like hall empty hallways. So, what are their Zoom calls like? Are, are they just sitting around like, well? Contents they can still watch it. <laughs> I, you always feel bad when there's like one of these big, like you know, tech ventures that's clearly like. I feel bad when movies bomb, man. Like I honestly do I've, because it's, I think it's the dumbest thing about me. I feel very. I I have. I don't pity. I don't pity the select the stars. No, no, you know? they're when, when, just when, fine. when a Channing Tatum franchise bombs yeah. he's fine he's okay he's like eh, whatever i'll go crying to about money but a lot of people worked on these like these big uh, like, that was somebody's dream that was yeah. somebody's like who sat in the movie theater waited till the end to see their name in the credits yeah. because this has been they've been working their whole life for it and nobody liked it I, it, it's, it is like you tell you, you and I have written enough, uh, uh, articles in our time that you, you, you put so much emotion and there's not even like a, this major, like financial investment from either of us personally, but you put a lot of thought 
and time and emotion and intellectual sure. energy into creating something. You're like, I'm putting this out in the world. Can't wait. And it's just crickets. And it is a defeating feeling or like, <laughs> it, or it's just some dismissive comment, more like irrelevant. It's like I spent months reporting on this issue with child soldiers and the government secret plan to, to fund, you know, nations that, that employ them. And you're going to dismiss it with one comment on Facebook. It yeah. is a defeating yeah. feeling, you know? It can be, uh, but, uh, and I think we've all, I think we may have talked about this before, but it's especially defeating when the same day, the post that you threw together in like 12 minutes, like uh, 12, 12 pictures of Dan Hasseltine that will encourage you in pandemic season and it ends up getting, it becomes a viral, a runaway viral sensation that sweeps across <laughs> the internet and everybody loves it. Meanwhile, the thoughtful take we had on how important it is for the church to love one another during pandemic season and to resist the the temptation towards uh, towards despair or anxiety. Everyone's like, oh, geez. sometimes yeah. Some nights when I lie awake in bed and I think about what my legacy has been, you know, in my in my uh, my my 37 years walking this planet and and working in media and it's like at the end of the day at the end of the day i know that the two things that have had the most like objective impact that i can see that people have engaged with the most commented on the most read the most spend the most time doing was a mar- uh, you know laughing at me as i did a marathon nickelback listening session where i just listened to their catalog for a week straight and an article that i posted on april fool's day a couple years ago called what your pastor's genes say about their theology that's my legacy <laughs> that's the okay that's, the online, that's your online footprint that is it. I've written thousands, hundreds of thousands of words. That's not an exaggeration. Words, probably millions of words about a variety of topics that I'm very passionate about. I've spent hours, countless hours, talking to activists and influencers and authors and thinkers and celebrities and trying to write interesting things that challenge the way people see the world. Yet pastor genes is still what people will most likely remember me for in terms of like work I've, I've personally produced. <laughs> that's probably a lot of people though, when you think about it, like that's like, how do you think, how do you think at the end of his life, I'm sure he was, cause they're fondly remembered, but say somebody like C.S. Lewis, yeah, an intellectual giant, sure. a, a scholar, an academic, a poet, a, knew multiple dead languages, not useful languages. He yeah. just learned languages nobody spoke because he was because he wanted to know more and wrote, you know, obviously like very well known apologetic, like yeah. extremely, you know, he's written a number of classics, but nine out of ten people, he's talking on the street, he says, C.S. Lewis, they say, Oh, that's the talking lions, the he was something with the little kids who in the in the snow. It's like it's like the viral video kid from like Charlie bit my finger, like like uh-huh. at the dawn of the internet era. You know, it's like that kid Charlie from Charlie bit my finger could go on to become like the prime minister Anything? of the UK and have a, a Churchill like following through you know one of the most tumultuous chapters in history. But at the end of his life, he'd be like, "Wait, the prime minister's the Charlie bit my finger kid? That is crazy, man! That is so crazy! I remember you that video. Your best. Yeah, you can't." You just lean past. in. Just you're lean like, in. You can't choose your own legacy. Yeah. I think that's where people go wrong a lot of times. Like, do you want to? What do you want to be remembered for? You have zero say. You do not. Other people are the ones who decide what you're going to be remembered for, and it may or may not be something that you want to be them to remember you for. But it'll be you'll be remembered for something, and it will very likely not be the thing that you spent most of your life working on, which is not a bad thing. It, but, but I think it, that's, it, I think it's, that's it's, okay. It's, 
There's a it's lot of not, freedom in it. It's 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 the uh, professional adult equivalent of when you're in elementary school and you get an unfortunate nickname. That is your nickname. It mm. doesn't matter what you do. It it, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter your academic life, your your social life, your your uh, athletic life. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. That nickname that one day that your mom decided <laughs> decided to pack a garlic and onion soup and you had bad breath all day guess what your stink tooth now from second grade all the way up till graduation i don't care if you're the qb1 and won five state state championships your stink tooth because of that one bowl of soup in second grade and you're gonna be that until college that's just how it is sounds like we're getting a little personal here and i didn't mean to i didn't i didn't mean to pick it a scab or anything like that i thought maybe those searchers would be fully healed now but maybe I did you were you did you have a nickname in high school fortunately, you, uh, fortunately i did not you know I, I i didn't have anything that stuck you know i had I, I had occasional like uncle jesse if i had like a haircut that people wanted to make fun of or like a, yeah, a messy that's, jesse that's like temporary yeah, yeah but yeah. but those those never stuck but you guys know the kids you know i had a guy in college oh, yeah. i had a guy in college his, his nickname and this is how i was introduced to him okay his nickname was pooter Okay, he his and all I knew him was either Poot or Pooter, and that was it. And he had the personality of someone named Poot or Pooter. He was always getting into hijinks. And one day, someone came up to the wing, and I knew, and I hung out with Poot every single day. Like me and Poot were always, you know, doing dumb stuff together. One day, someone came up to the wing, and I was just like hanging out in the alcove, doing whatever. And he comes up and he goes, hey, is, uh, and I won't say his real name, but let's say is Matthew Jones up here? And I'm like, there's no Matthew Jones that lives on this floor. And he's like, are you sure? I thought he lived on this floor. I thought he was in that room. I was like, no, no, that's that's Poot's room, man. That's where Pooter lives. <laughs> and he's like, that's Matthew Jones. I was like, I didn't even know his name. And he didn't want, he didn't want Poot or Pooter to be his name, but he didn't have a say so in the matter. You don't get it. You don't get a pick. You don't get a say in the matter. This feel that feels like more of a and I I could be wrong on this, but that does feel like more of a guy thing. Like yeah. guys will pick a random circumstance and assign. Yeah. A, I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's exceptions, and maybe may, and maybe it's totally possible that like yeah. the nicknames that girls get are just so unsettling, yeah, and like dis- mean girl and, and, stuff. and filthy that they, they can't even say them publicly. They, they wait till all the guys are behind closed doors before they bust those out because it's, it would be shocking to our core. Because here's the thing when, when guys, cause I can't speak for, for how this works in like young circles that are primarily comprised of, of young women. But I do, I've been in the circles with dudes and it's not that guys look for the most humiliating moment of your life to try to immortalize so. no. in a nickname. That's often the outcome. Like it, the one moment that you'd like to forget, you know what I mean? That one, mm-hmm. that, that one time you accidentally let one rip in PE class or that one time <laughs> you stumbled on the name or, or you tripped and fell on the stairs. It's not that the desire is that they want you to have to relive that. Everyone says, every time someone says your name and to literally have your identity wrapped up in a horrible moment. The, the, the thinking is with dudes, What's the most hilarious thing that ever happened to that guy? And it's, oh, yeah. Remember the time he yacked in his classmate's backpack? And now he's, now he's, y- he's, yak, he's yak pack, yak pack Steve. Yeah, yak pack <laughs> Steve. There he is. Yak pack Steve had a really bad day. He had a big breakfast, a little unsettled, and he was going to throw up and he had nowhere to do it. And he did it in his buddy's backpack. It was horrible. He had to go home sick. Little did he know he's Yak Pack Steve for the rest of his, his academic career. And it won't change. He doesn't get a redo. 
There's no, no nope. you can't, you can't like, tr- there's, he's not going to become slam dunk Steve because he did the game winning. It doesn't matter. Finals. Nope. He didn't, he, you could, you could, he could do the splits over the opposing team. You two might as well transfer two six pack. footers and like, bam, like windmill it in. <laughs> and it just, yak pack Steve, you did it. You saved it. You find, did it. You find won a the new game, school, yak pack Steve. <laughs> just find a new school. That's the only advice we got for you. Today's show is brought to you by Adventist Development and Relief Agency. Wars, child labor, child brides, discrimination, poverty, even acts of nature. These are just some of the things keeping 264 million children out of school worldwide. Without education, nothing changes. The Adventist Development and Relief Agency says enough is enough. Visit adra.org slash sign up to join ADRA's Every Child Everywhere in School campaign. The ADRA, serving humanity so all may live as God intended. Well, in addition to uh, to Yak Pack Steve, and who will I, I predict tooth, will make a return? Stink tooth and Yak Pack Steve. I, I predict they'll make a return to the conversation at some point during the podcast, and that's not all. We've got we've got another treat for you. We actually had a I had a great conversation with two people, Raymond Chang and Dr. Michelle Reyes. They're the president and vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Uh, they've released. Uh, their organization released a really what I found to be excellent statement on how the church can and should respond to not just the COVID-19 pandemic, but some of the attempts to uh, to stigmatize Asian folks, to, uh, to some of the instances of racism, both very overt and very subtle that we've seen during this pandemic. I really loved their statement and was grateful to get to talk to them, not just about some of the sentiment that they're seeing and how we can fight back, but uh, how the church can do a better job of confronting systemic racism at a broad scale uh, that sort of transcends the pandemic we're in. That is a great conversation. I am looking forward to sharing all of that with you. And uh, if you can power through some of our nickname banter here in the the A block, then I think you'll be richly rewarded you, for you, the rest of that conversation. Yeah, you can tell we had a lot of thought into what our A block was going to be today. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, We are going to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, we're doing the hot list. Stay with us. You're listening to Inside Friend by Leon Bridges featuring John Mayer. How about that? How about combo? That winning that team. A good combo. That, yeah. I wonder if do you think they did that? Was that a Zoom? A Zoom collab? Yeah, it's like think? the old school. It's like you know, old school like hip hop collaborations where someone sends. It's like, do you remember? This is what happened with um, Postal Service. That's why the the oh, old yeah, collaboration between. Death Cab for Cutie, and I forget the DJ's name, who was the, but they called, they're called their side project, which actually Postal Service music still holds up. Chandler, maybe coming out of this break, we fire up a Postal Service song so people can uh, remember how good they are. Relive, but the reason uh, they called it Postal Service is because they would send each other, uh, you know, demos through the mail and collaborate that way. I mean, uh, uh, that dates Postal Service quite a bit. I mean, I guess now it would be like Dropbox. <laughs> Not anymore. Dropbox is the name uh, yeah, of the Dropbox. Yeah, yeah. What's going to happen if the because you know the postal service didn't get a bailout famously that was cause of a lot of oh yeah uh, a lot of conversation online so if, post, if we lose the postal service then the then the band lasted longer 
than the actual. Well, not really, because they kind of they, they didn't break up, but they. Yeah, it's in, indefinite hiatus, you know, indefinite hiatus. They were, well, and uh, we did we did hear beginning of the podcast, by the way, uh, Kyoto. That's the new one from Phoebe Bridgers. She's got a new album coming out. And if you did, we're, we're moving into pandemic albums now because this, uh, as we posted on the over on the website, Phoebe Bridgers put together, she, the idea was going to be that she would go to Japan to film the Kyoto music video. Obviously, that didn't happen. So she just filmed herself in front of a green screen in her apartment and then put <laughs> Japanese B-footage, just B-roll from Japan over it. And it's, it ends up being probably a more entertaining music video yeah, than it would have go. been otherwise. Yeah. You know, necessity, yeah. mother of invention and all that. Yeah. yeah. All right, time for our weekly look back at the top five stories of the intersection of faith and culture from this week. It's time for... It's the hot the hot It's sizzling. All right, this is, a, this is a great story. You love to see it. This church launched an initiative to help deliver groceries on a national scale. So the idea started off simple enough. In the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, New Jersey pastor Chris Morante wanted to get groceries into the hands of self-isolating people couldn't get to the supermarket without risking their health and safety. Evangel Church and Scotch Plains recruited volunteers to safely deliver food and other basics via a little local initiative he called Boxes of Hope. He told Fox News, quote, we've always been committed to reaching our neighbors. We always say our mission field is across the street and around the world. So we began to mobilize our efforts as soon as we saw this crisis beginning. The idea started to spread, powered by Morante's vision of seeing, quote, hope spread faster than COVID-19. And soon Boxes of Hope was delivering throughout the New Jersey area. Then Morante teamed up with Convoy of Hope and World Help, networking with churches all across America to roll the project out across the nation. And the results have been pretty stunning. He said, quote, people come to the door in tears for you to know that you're not forgotten. There's a God that sees you and loves you. And there's someone in a church that cares about you. It really means the world to people. This is a cool initiative. And it's we we try to highlight these stories because obviously there's a lot of bad stuff happening. But uh, we want to make sure that we're that we're finding the ways that people are mobilizing in the crisis. And it's really cool to see somebody, especially a church, uh, have a lot of success and then find a way to keep ramping that up, you know, yeah. find a way to, to really push that into a, a bigger, broader, more widespread, uh, just organizing past what they could do on their own. It's hard to do. It, it, it is. But when you think about one of the strengths of the church beyond obviously the spiritual values that are shared is, you know, on just a very pragmatic sense, there are very few institutions that are able to mobilize resources and people very, very quickly, you know? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I mean, a lot of these churches, I mean, look, especially non-denominational churches that operate, you know, either with a very small elder board or, you know, the vision of like a, a single lead pastor. I know there's, I know that leaves, uh, there's a lot of things that can go wrong with that structure, but it also, there's no red tape. And if a, and if a, a pastor or elder board says, Hey, we need to do this, then, you know, they, they can kind of really use that uh, institutional nimbleness to pull off big things really quickly, which in situations like this, I think is very cool. Yeah, when you're having to move really, really quickly and you don't necessarily have time to and when churches can partner with other organizations pre-existing, like it's amazing the 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 power of cooperation and organization and networking is uh, is always really impressive and is always really inspiring. But especially right now, and we saw it here in Nashville after those tornadoes went through when you you had 24 hours to start getting food 
water uh, yeah. hand sanitizer into people's hands and uh and it was really cool to walk around town and see churches doing that in their local areas it yeah. was uh it's fun and good on this church for finding ways to do that and i hope they continue we've posted links over at relevantmagazine.com with this story if you and your church want to get involved they're taking volunteers right now and you can sign up with them get connected to their resources and start doing the same thing in your area too number four this week <laughs> hulk hogan on self-quarantine God says God has taken away everything we worship. All right. So the self-isolation guidelines imposed by COVID-19 have cut a swap through every conceivable aspect of American culture. And there might be some measure of divine providence in that, according to Hulk Hogan, who took to Instagram to dish out a pile driver of thoughtful theological wisdom. He wrote, quote, God has taken away everything we worship. God said, you want to worship athletes? I will shut down the stadiums. You want to worship musicians? I will shut down civic centers. You want to worship actors? I will shut down theaters. You want to worship money? I will shut down the economy and collapse the stock market. You don't want to go to church and worship me? I will make it where you can't go to church. Quoted a famous passage from Second Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. He finished up his post by writing that, quote, maybe we need to take this time of isolation from the distractions of the world and have a personal revival where we focus on the only thing in the world that really matters, Jesus. Uh, Hogan has spoken publicly about his faith in the past, saying he became a Christian when he was 14. He told TMZ, I've leaned on my religion. I accepted Christ as my savior. He died on the cross and paid for my sins. I could have went the wrong way. I could have self-destructed, but I took the high road. Now, last week we talked about uh, the Stakeham's Twitter account and the unlikely yeah. wisdom we received from them. This, if anything, this is at least as unlike Hulk Hogan coming yeah. through with what seems like a pretty thoughtful biblical observation yeah. is at least as unlikely as the, the Stakeham's blue check. Yeah, and, and Hulk Hogan is, you know, a, a flawed person who's who said. Let's call him. Let, let, a nuanced you, you, you know, I, I'm, not gonna, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to you know, sit here and talk about all this public indiscretion. They're widely available. And, you know, this certainly is an endorsement. But I think anytime someone engages a conversation about God without any seemingly any agenda, but just to kind of challenge people's thinking about mm -hmm. the world and ask them to apply it to a biblical context, I think it's a potentially a positive thing. Uh, but I don't know if I, I like I think the heart of what he's saying is good. Like, yeah, you know, a lot I don't of th think. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. It, I agree it, with you. It, like, I think the heart of it is, is good. Like, hey, listen, the world has changed very rapidly and we don't know when it's going to be back to normal. So take this time and focus on the things in your life that are important and use the time to, you know, kind of see your relationship with God in a new context. You know, like, I think that is good. Like reevaluate why it's so hard not to be able to go out yeah. to a bar or, you know, or, you know, turn your mind off and watch sports. Re certainly reevaluate those things and prioritize what's important in life, you know, spiritually uh, as well as relation uh, re relationally. But the, the one thing I said, it, the one thing that I like caution is how he frames it of God has taken away everything we worship. I don't know if the, I don't, you know, th there's other people who are more, um, you know, theologically well versed in the idea of sovereignty of what actually God, it's not about what God can control, but what he does control. And I'm not, I, I don't necessarily think, I think that there's a danger in framing it of God has taken away everything we worship because that means God created this virus with the intent 
of stripping mm-hmm. down everything and culture at the cost of hundreds of thousands, perhaps globally, when all of a sudden done millions of lives. I don't necessarily know that's the case, you know, that, that God did that, you, you know, that that's how he orchestrated this. I, I don't know. But at the same time, I, I, I don't want to like assign intentions to God that it, it, we're not sure if it was him, you know doesn't square with my theology of how God works and what God does. And I think it's really easy for some people, including Hulk Hogan, whose uh, whose own industry, professional wrestling, has been deemed an essential service (laughs) right now. (laughs) So it's easy for some people to, uh, you know, if you're if the less affected you are, the more you can kind of take a step back and examine things a little higher up on Maslow's hierarchy like this. That's a good thing. I don't knock that. Uh, but I, I don't love that you, you can use, like you said, Jesse, you can use this time in a godly way without saying God caused this, uh, yeah, God caused all this death and destruction. I, I don't think that, and I know there's a lot of different opinions out there about that. And I I'm willing to people of good conscience, I think can disagree on exactly how sovereignty operates here. Uh, I would say that my own personal theology does it's this, the idea of God, of coronavirus being like a curse doesn't really pan out yeah, for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, but hey, good, good on Hulk for saying this. Yeah, and, for throwing and, it out uh, there. You know, having, having a little... It's, it's, interesting, the, it's interesting conversation. Yeah, chopping it up we're out there all, on Instagram about the we're, we're all in un, uncharted waters here, so we're all saying a lot of things yeah. that, we might, that we might feel a little silly about down the road. Number three this week, Americans are evenly divided on whether the Bible should influence U.S. law. All right, so should the Bible have any sway over the Constitution? Document itself doesn't mention Jesus or the Bible, and in fact specifically forbids any laws respecting an establishment of religion, of course. But according to a new Pew study, about half of Americans think the Bible should have at least some influence in U.S. law. Almost a quarter believe it should have a great deal of influence. Christians, of course, are more likely to believe the Bible should influence the law, 68% of whom say it should have at least some influence. That number jumps all the way to 89% if you're talking just about white evangelicals. Catholics, meanwhile, are split almost in half on the question. 51% say the Bible should have some influence. 48% say it should have not much or none at all. A uh, similar difference among political parties, 67% of Republicans say the Bible should have at least some influence over U.S. law. Uh, that's almost the exact opposite as it is for Democrats, 66% of whom say the Bible should have little to no influence over the U.S. law. And uh, it's, there's also a lot of generational contrast. The older you are, the more likely you are to think the Bible should have at least some, if not a lot, of influence, 18 to 29-year-old respondents being the least likely to agree with that. Now, as Pew notes, the more probing question here is to what degree should the Bible take priority over the will of the people? About 28% of Americans believe that the Bible should triumph over the will of the people when it comes to matters of law. Meanwhile, a little less than 20% agree the Bible should have some influence, but the will of the people should ultimately prevail. But among white evangelicals, seven in 10 say the Bible should trump what the people want. This more or less lines up with other studies I think we've talked about here, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think the problem is w- with studies like this, it's like, well, yeah, should the Bible, which, you know, look, the Bible's a massive book, and should it have influence on law? 
you know, maybe, but what part of the Bible are we talking here? Because there are some parts of the Bible that I don't think should really inform, you know, contemporary laws on how we and deal with social does. issues. You know what I mean? Are there things in the Bible that are at this point universally accepted as virtues for a society, you know, almost universally accepted as virtues, no matter what your faith is, should those inform law? Absolutely. You know, like caring mm-hmm. for the least of these, I think is a good moral principle. Like if you're talking about it has influenced law for thousands of years now for, for multiple governments and, and political institutions, the Bible yeah. has had a lot of sway over law. And to some degree, that's been a positive thing. Yeah, it, it, for some degree it has, but like you, you know, I, it's. I think. Look, I think the the Ten Commandments are are great moral principles, you know. But mm-hmm. I don't personally believe that thou shalt have no other god before me should be legally enforceable. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. personally, yeah, I, I try to follow that. I try not to have anything in my life before my relationship with God. I think it's the most important thing. But do I think a judge should go and say and tell someone who doesn't share my faith that they can't have another, you know, God, whether that is like a deity or just some sort of, you know, uh, commercial idol. Th- th- I don't think that's legally enforceable. And I don't know if I want to live in a society where politicians are making those calls. So uh, there is a lot to unpack there, especially when you look at the the Bible in its totality versus some underlying biblical principles here. You know, I think that yeah, distinction yeah, is biblical made. principles, which honestly frequently transcend just the Christian religion too. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. You can take a lot of the agreed upon principles and find echoes of them in uh, in other religions. And that's the, we live in a pluralistic society and that's a yeah. good thing. That's yeah. a positive. We, we like diversity. Um, and uh, I think there's a, a lot of agreed upon principles that, that are definitely reflected in the Bible that uh, everybody can agree on. But I think this question can take on kind of a, a bitter tone sometimes. And it's hard that it can get a little hard to parse out. What do you mean when you say the Bible should influence us law? Because a, I'm not always sure that what people think is in the Bible is actually in the Bible. And I think there are studies particularly from, uh, from Lifeway resources that would bear that out that a lot of people, when they say, I think, well, this is in the Bible, so we should be doing it. And they're like, well, it's not, really in the Bible. It might be in your interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. So there's just a, there's a lot going on in this question that it doesn't really get into. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the amount of people who say yes, <laughs> if we can leave it at that. And, and there might be people that disagree with what I'm about to say, and that's okay. Like I, that's fine. But my personal belief is that on this side of heaven, you know, this side of the second coming, like, I personally would rather live in a democracy than a theocracy, personally. And I think objectively, if you look at the evidence of how those two systems have played out, it seems to be that the sample size right now would lean towards uh, a, a democratic approach to, to creating laws, not a theocratic one. And so, uh-huh. you know, who knows what the, the hereafter is going to look like, you know, in the kingdom that is to come. Uh, but for right now, I would be more comfortable living in a de- democracy than having people in authority tell me, you know, what I need to believe and be, and that being legally enforceable. Creating a theological litmus test for laws to make sure they all pass the muster of of a biblical interpretation and who even knows which one it would end up being. Exactly, exactly. Because I would guarantee that as soon as you got some biblically 
uh, enforceable laws in there, you'd be like, people would sort of be like, well, not that interpretation of the Bible, or that's not what the, yeah. I know what the verse said, like, it's just, it creates a, it creates a hornet's nest. And I think there's, there's a, what this question asks can have a lot of different answers depending on the kind of person who ends up answering it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Number two this week, Reese Witherspoon's fashion line giveaway fiasco highlights the perils of celebrity charity. All right. The COVID-19 crisis has set everyone scrambling for a way to pitch in. And that includes celebs whose attempts at helping out have run the gamut from awkward to admirable. Reese Witherspoon's boutique fashion line Draper James is an interesting case study and just how complicated celebrity philanthropy can be and how the best of intentions can go awry in a pandemic. It's a straightforward story. On April 2nd, Draper James launched what sure sounds like a good idea. Since teachers are facing a particularly trying role in the pandemic, why not offer them a free dress? Dresses aren't exactly essential, but it's a nice gift. The idea wasn't Witherspoon's, but she liked it. So an Instagram post went out telling teachers to submit a simple online application to receive their dress valid while supplies last. Just one problem... The post went viral and the application site crashed almost immediately. By the end of the application period, Draper James had sold about had about a million applications. The business itself is about five years old and had 250 dresses on hand in six styles. Marissa Cooley, the senior vice president for brand marketing and creative at Draper James, told The Times, quote, We felt like we moved too quickly and didn't anticipate the volume of the response. We were really overwhelmed. It was way more volume than our company had ever seen. We expected the single-digit thousands. There's a social media uproar and an apology email with a 30% off coupon, but the damage to the brand had been done. It was amplified by Witherspoon's connection with Draper James. The line between actress and brand is blurry intentionally. That's usually a good thing for the brand. People like Reese Witherspoon. They want to shop at her store, but when there's trouble... That means Witherspoon is on the receiving end of the ire, however tangential her involvement. So this is an interesting story. And I don't tell it here to like dunk on Reese Witherspoon or yeah. you know, I like Reese yeah. Witherspoon. And, and she's, I think this is obviously like not a bad thing. It's a case of good intentions gone right. That a lot of people, uh, I think are anybody who's tried to do a good deed, especially in a complicated time like this, can knows the feeling of what happens when your eyes get a little bigger than your stomach, you know? And you're like, Oh, wouldn't this be fun? Like we should do this. It'd be a good thing. And then things just go out of control because things went a little too fast. Like their senior VP said, and you didn't take time to get all the facts down or maybe be as thorough in your planning as you should have been. Yeah. Churches have a lot of experiences. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you, you kind of feel bad for everyone involved here. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. it seemed like everyone had good intentions and obviously the brand is embarrassed and Ruiz Witherspoon is embarrassed, but you know, it's the teachers, man. They took the time to fill out the application thinking that they were, that's just something cool was going to be done for them. And th- that, you know, promise wasn't able to be fulfilled. It, it, look, it, you can assign a lot of blame here, but it's just, it's just a bummer. But look, man, things happen. I would rather brands be thinking about ways to help you know, or, or just kind of ease the discomfort that a lot of people are feeling right now, even if they're not like offering some sort of like monetary assistance to people in need, but, but just doing something nice for people, I think is a strong impulse. So, you know, it's one of those things. Yeah. They should have thought through it more, but it's better to see brands trying stuff like this than not trying stuff at all. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, what's the alternative there? This came from a really good place and, and I've seen more than one. I think, 
like trying to let, and this is something else that I think spending a lot of time in churches has helped me learn, like limiting your scope is a really good thing to do. Like just saying, like, even if it yeah. just been, we want to offer teachers in Tennessee, Draper or, James or, or we want to get 300 or, teachers, you know, it's like the first 300 yeah, yeah. or nominate, you know, tell them why they deserve a job. Mm-hmm. It could have been mm-hmm. executed, but, but you see this, you see this in a lot of things where even when things go right, a lot of people would just find reasons to dunk on people in the modern yeah, era. Yeah. I mean, it's oh, like Tennessee teachers. Yeah. Any billionaire right now that cuts a check for like $25 million, which is a ton of money. Okay. Like a lot of money. A million dollars is a ton of money. But anytime there's a billionaire who cuts a check for, for a humanitarian cause, which has been happening a lot in the, you know, um, um, while this pandemic is happening, every, you know, the, the reactions are very predictable. It's like, well, Jeff Bezos, sure, he gave $25 million. That's like if you or I gave $200. And it's like, <laughs> well, have you given $200? It's like, so are you saying he shouldn't have given $25 million? Like, we're only going to be happy if he gives away $25 billion? It's like, Let's just take the 25 million and like, yeah, if we want to revisit tax law, that's fine. That's we have an election coming up and that's a big thing about, you know, taxing the top, you know, 1% of 1%. That That's fine. But let's not shame people for doing good things because they could have done more. It's like, yes, everyone could do more. <laughs> But let's praise people for at least doing something good. It's like, you know, I don't know. Did you kind of get that impulse too when, when one of these billionaires does something like that? I think I think it's why you really need and in very few places have even places that can afford them because it, it doesn't feel like a necessary thing. But to have some sort of like ethics board that you can talk to somebody who can be your your when you're when you're somebody like a Bezos um or a, or or a Bill Gates or a Zuckerberg or whoever these guys are who can give you a little bit of a bird's eye view of like okay what would be what's the amount that feels uh that is that is going to be somewhat of an analog to what like the average person is maybe giving away right now yeah because are people going to complain no matter what of course they are yeah right now especially people are upset and they're scared and they're looking for ways to to funnel that and if you've got some money. You're you're probably going to be more likely to be on the receiving end of something like that, but uh, but having having a, a some something like an ethics board is a really valuable uh, accountability. Sure. And a lot of these places, I remember seeing. I won't I won't be able to remember the numbers right now, but I remember seeing how few of these places, especially like the more money they have, the few less likely they are to have them. It's a good thing to have around because you you, you don't need them until it's kind of like. Uh, you know, like a lot of things in the U.S. right now, you don't need it until you do. Yeah. Then you'll wish you'd had it around yeah. ahead of time. And, and I think that, dude, I think that's excellent advice and, and real wisdom. But I also want to caution people from being critical of generosity. You know, like, yes, agreed. because there's, agreed. there's probably a lot of rando billionaires out there looking and be like, well, look at Bezos. If he hadn't <laughs> given $40 million to world hunger, people wouldn't be all mad at him on Reddit. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, dude, just say, let's just be like, okay, cool. He gave 40, 40 million. Could he give more? Yeah. Will he? Maybe. I don't know. But let's just take the 40 million and feed some hungry people here and not complain that he didn't give 80 million or whatever arbitrary number you want to, you know, assign to somebody's generosity. You know, I did see that. I can't think of that guy's name. We talked about him a few weeks ago. The the guy who started that Silicon Valley credit card company. Uh, actually, I think it was oh, like yeah. the, maybe the Bay area or so. Yeah. 
but he he took a big pay cut. He was a CEO yeah. was at the top. He was doing well. Ended up taking a big pay cut. Uh, he went down, I think, to the minimum wage that his company offered, which was still yeah. quite a pretty healthy chunk of change. Yeah. Uh, and saw like a lot of very positive uh, results, both business wise and uh, and in terms of uh, just personally and in terms of HR with his own company. And I saw that he uh, he instead of they were they were looking at layoffs. Uh, he went and talked to the team directly said, here's, here's the number of people we're thinking about having to let go. And instead the entire company voted and everybody got a vote, uh, to take pay cuts instead of lay anybody off. And that was really cool to see. That's a really interesting way, uh, an ethical way of trying to navigate having a decent amount of money and being a CEO during a really complicated time. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably no right way to do it. You know, yeah. there's just no plan. You, they, you know, they didn't they're, teach they're, this. They're, and exactly, econ. everyone's dealing with a crisis, and let's let's give let's give everybody a little grace here. We're all trying Be to figure nice. this out. Yeah, coming in number one this week. Well, and then a top top one. Dance your heart out to Lauren Daigle's socially distanced spin on still rolling stones. All right. So one of the entertaining parts of global efforts to flatten the curve has been how many musicians have been trying to get creative with their own live performances. Everyone from Lynn Manuel to Miranda to Chris Martin has released Zoomified versions of their hits, and now Daigle is getting in on the action, virtually recruiting no fewer than a dozen of her bandmates and background singers for a rollicking version of Still Rolling Stones. The performance doesn't lose a single inch of its fun or power over social distance. You'll hear what I mean. Check it out. Daigle was supposed to be in the middle of a global tour with Johnny Swim right now, but of course, those plans have been put on hiatus. But it's nice to see she's making the most of a bummer situation. I don't, I'm not a, I've never been in a band. Jesse, you've been in a band. How difficult is this realistically, do you think, to set up a Zoom, set up the conference call and have everybody doing their, playing their own instrument in isolation? to make something like this work. I would say from my experience, nearly impossible because I was in a band. It was nearly impossible to do when we were in person. So this would be <laughs> hence me not being in bands anymore. <laughs> you always have one goofball in the band. Who's always jacking around uh-huh. during band practice. And I, you know, that guy is no longer in bands. So I think this would be very, very difficult, but I mean, look, I saw them perform. I saw Lauren Daigle and her band perform at Lollapalooza this year. They're all incredible musicians. They could probably do this blind. They probably don't even need connections on zoom. They could probably just, she could just like text them on the count of three, you know, count to 10 and we're all going to start singing. And if you magically match them up, you know, it it, it would work because that's how good they are. I just want to know where my, where my invitation is because I have a good baritone and they could have just added one more thing in there and be like, Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like I am <laughs> oh, the, guy the guy in the old Chili's jingle that's just waiting for my turn. And I go with barbecue sauce. You know what I mean? Where they're like, I got my baby back, baby Chili's baby back. And then there's just one guy and his whole thing. He's just waiting for it. He goes with barbecue sauce. I could be that guy. I could be the baritone, you know, still rolling stone. I know for a fact, this is just, I know my own luck. I know my own ability, my musical ability. I know for, you could put me on any, you could put me on the rain stick and I would find a way to mess it up. I would be, I would be half step huck for the rest of my life because during our big live zoom performance, I got the rain stick off and everybody would make fun of me. It'd be my new nickname. 
old old rain stick McGee or what? Yeah, <laughs> I, and they wouldn't even need to tell me. They'd be like Jesse. Just when you feel a lull in the music, just say something random in baritone. <laughs> when you like, feel a I'm like, what do you want me to music? say? Is there a lyric? And they're like, just say anything. And coffee mug and they're like oh that works <laughs> do it that's totally fine just say something random and people think it's supposed to be there and it'll give you that nice baritone soul so there we go <laughs> all right well that'll do it for this week's it's the hottest, the it's stay tuned when we come back ray chang and dr michelle reyes will join us listening to here they come it's by hamilton lighthouser all right so today we're talking to two people ray chang and dr michelle reyes uh ray chang is the president of the aacc he's a pastor and an author along with regularly preaching god's word he speaks widely throughout the country on issues pertaining to christianity and culture and race and faith he lives in Chicagoland, serving as a campus minister at Wheaton College, overseeing discipleship efforts. Prior to entering vocational ministry, Ray worked in both the for-profit and nonprofit sectors. He's married to Jessica Chang, who serves as the Chief Advancement and Partnerships Officer of the Field School. Dr. Michelle Reyes is the Vice President of the AACC, as well as a church planter, pastor's wife, author, speaker, and activist. She lives in Austin, Texas. Michelle co-planted Hope Community Church. That's a minority-led, multicultural church that serves low-income and disadvantaged communities in East Austin alongside her husband in 2014 and also serves as the local CCDA Austin networker. She has a book coming out with Zondervan on cross-cultural relationships. Her writings on faith and culture have appeared in Christianity Today Women, ERLC, Missio Alliance, Faithfully Magazine, and Pathios, among others. She and her husband have two young kids, uh, four and one years old. Here is my conversation with these two. I was really interested and excited to talk to them about, um, about racism, particularly anti-Asian racism which has flared up with the coronavirus uh, due in part to, to panic and some bad faith actors and uh, their, uh, their wisdom for this time, especially for us here in the church, was so thoughtful and so poignant. I wish I could play the whole thing. Here's a few clips of it. We'll have a longer, more fleshed out uh, transcript of our conversation on the site later on. Here is Ray Chung and Michelle Reyes. So the first thing I wanted to know from them is really how this statement even came together in the first place. What was the impetus for writing it and for uh, getting it out there? Here's what they said. There were a few of us that were in a chat because we were all kind of experiencing similar things from people in and out of the church and the experiences that that we were facing as Asian Americans, even though we came from different backgrounds, were so similar as well. And I mean, by backgrounds, like ethnic backgrounds. So you know, you have a guy like Jay, who is Filipino, uh, Jeff, who is Chinese, and then myself, who's Korean, and then Michelle, who's Indian American. And, you know, all of us are ethnically different, but we are all experiencing similar things. And we're all in different locations as well. I mean, Jeff, Jay and I are in Chicago. So Jay is in the city of Chicago. I'm in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, Michelle is in Texas, and uh, Jeff is in California. And we were all experiencing a type of either 
denial or diminishing or dismissal of kind of the racism that was starting to develop around the Asian American community. And then we were also hearing acts of overt violence that were being committed against other Asian Americans, whether they were East Asians or they were uh, South Asians or Southeast Asians, you know? And so we were very concerned with the direction of, of the conversation that was taking place. And we wanted to make a statement so that churches and Christians could be educated on the issues. And that if we can help people kind of curve the violence and curve the racism, and prevent, prevent it from getting worse, that would have been good. And so, so that's what we try to do. We really wanted to make sure that, that church members, Christians, non-Christians alike knew that this was wrong, that this was a sin, that you know, violence that includes everything from spinning to yelling at people to uh, even stabbings, which have taken place for nothing other than being Asian, should, should be stopped and prevented where it's possible. And so that's why we drafted the statement and launched this organization called the Asian American Christian Collaborative. I think a lot of us have heard some of the horror stories about racism, the headlines, but I was curious to hear their thoughts on some of the more systemic issues you might be facing and how those are influencing our response collectively and as Christians in particular. Here's what they had to say about that. I feel like I have to take a step back to, to answer that question and just I think it's important to be very clear as to what anti-Asian racism is. And anti-Asian racism is not just racial prejudices leveled against Asians and Asian Americans. In fact, the definition of racism as a whole is really any prejudice against someone because of their race when those views are reinforced by systems of power. And so like while, while I agree that it's important to talk about how individuals are per- perpetuating racism and things like microaggressions, we have to understand that issues of anti-Asian racism in America right now can't be reduced to just simple battles for the hearts and minds of, of individual peoples, but rather seeing even even the smallest slight, these, these sorts of racist behaviors and racial oppressions as part of a larger system. And, you know, Ray and I, we could probably tell you countless stories of just sort of what people might consider minor instances, right? Like whether it's on Twitter, people tweeting at me, telling me to go home or that I need to own this virus. Um, I've had friends spit on or chase down the street while kids shout coronavirus at them. Or people just like stepping off the sidewalk and going on the other side of the street when, you know, when we, when we are coming near. But when I'm counseling Asian Americans, because I'm a church planter, pastor's wife, very much involved in day-to-day ministry on the ground in the church. When I'm counseling Asian American Christians about these kinds of things, I tell them, don't fight the individual, fight the system. Because sure, we can sit down with our neighbor or fellow classmate or coworker and have a long, hard talk about why their comments are hurtful and maybe even convince them to have greater respect for Asians so that if anything, it's easier to talk with him or her. But that alone won't do anything to combat systemic tropes of yellow peril in the news and within institutions and pop culture that portray Asians and their food and their customs as unsafe and unwelcome. So we have to understand that even these individual acts of racism and things like microaggressions feed into systems that discriminate, that uh, feed into fear and jeopardize people's whole livelihoods. And that's really what we're after in, in terms of wanting to stop. I think the hardest part of all this can be empathy sometimes and uh, and just trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, especially for those of us who, who aren't Asian. So I just wanted to hear a little bit about 
their uh their their own experience the what what are what are people who are asian in this country going through right now and how is it affecting them especially during a, a national crisis and uh here are some of the thoughts there a common experience of fear you know from the east coast to the west coast the north uh, to the south that so many asian americans are experiencing and even making decisions to go outside it you know it's it's indicative of a, of a systemic reality like uh we don't like it, we, we're in a catch 22 where we don't want to cover our faces because that signals that we might be sick playing into the media images of Chinese people in masks. And then we also don't want to go without a mask because we don't want to catch it if we can avoid it. And if we do have it because the virus uh, doesn't show up for two to 14 days, we don't want to spread it. And so we're in an impossible decision. So my wife and I, I uh, have to think twice about whether we go out to the grocery store or to Target or Walmart because we know that the common sentiment in the air is around Asian people, who, especially those who look Chinese, as being as having the virus and as well as being the virus. In mm-hmm. fact, the first time I went outside after we self-quarantined, which uh, which in and of itself to be able to quarantine is a tremendous privilege uh, that isn't afforded to many wage workers and those performing kind of those essential jobs, especially those frontline workers who are in healthcare, mm-hmm. who are in the healthcare industry. Uh, I went to Walmart and two women who happened to be white pointed at me as soon as I walked in and said, there's another one. And at first I was wondering what they meant. Uh, but it didn't take long for me to look around and see that the only distinguishing feature between me and everyone else was that I was Asian. You know, other people were wearing masks. Other people were dressed in a similar way. Other people were, you know, were men. Other people, you know, were taller, you know, all this other stuff. But that, that would, to me was like, okay, I am, this is the first time I left my house in a week. And the first time I leave the house, someone identifies me as, and, and equates me to the virus. And that, that was concerning to me. That was Ray Chung and Michelle Reyes. Check their work out at AsianAmericanChristianCollaborative.com. AsianAmericanChristianCollaborative.com. You're listening to Fetch the Bolt Cutters, the new one from Fiona Apple. Well, normally, uh, for the past couple of however long this has been, Jesse and I launch into our another round of Quarantine Recommends, where we tell you what we've been watching while under quarantine. We're going to switch it up this week. You may have seen over on relevantmagazine.com an update from the staff here about a new era of Relevant that we're very excited to launch into. As part of that, we are welcoming back after a six-month hiatus, our founder and CEO, Cameron Strang. Uh, Cameron, we are all excited to welcome you back to the podcast, Cameron. Yeah, welcome back. That was really that was really <laughs> weird hearing you host the show. <laughs> <laughs> I've been see what you've you missed. Oh so, yeah, this has been really you. You haven't been listening. No, have I, you? It's on my sabbatical, I had smooth, I had all, smooth filters sailing. on all my internet that I could not see nor engage anything from relevant. Uh, it was yeah. Very sad. Yeah, well, Tyler Tyler has been all using this as a, as you can hear from that intro for his audition for the next host of sixty minutes. I'm very <laughs> impressed. <laughs> he's gonna do the he's gonna do the Mickey Rooney segment at the end of the show. What's the deal? What this is all cotton. When I buy the prescription pills, it's like half cotton now. 
this is usually our true crime part of the podcast where I update somebody on my latest investigations <laughs> into the Nashville crime scene, but we're foregoing that <laughs> now, possibly indefinitely. Um, Cameron, obviously, uh, we've been in some communication with you over the last six months, but uh, you have been uh, out of the out of the spotlight for the first time in a long time. And I'd, uh, I think everybody's interested probably to hear what you've been up to. Yeah, I, dude, I, I'm excited to be back. And, um, you know, it's been a long and very hard season and a lot has happened and a lot's changed. And I know that our audience cares to know um, kind of not only how, what I've been up to or, or what's different about the company now, which we'll touch on, but um, I know a lot of people, I, I've been surprised by this because you and you guys and I are so close to this story um, or what, what happened in our world that it felt like the entire universe was talking about this. And I've been shocked um, over the last couple of months as I've been <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, kind of transitioning to a new season, trying to move forward that a whole lot of people have no clue what happened. And um, I think that's probably a good place to start last fall. Um it started on Twitter and then expanded from there. Um, some a former employee uh, talked about his experience working with me and shared some stories of essentially insensitivity on my part. And um, other employees saw that and started to share their stories of of uh, difficult work experience with me. Um, some big labels were put on me. Um, some. It was very, very hard. Um, it felt like a cacophony online um, of, of, of people wanting me to go away. And um, I, it was, it was um, shocking to me. Um, I'll be honest with you because, you know, coming up for air, like looking back at 20 years of doing relevant, I mean, we started this in 2000. Um, we've always been advocates for racial justice, racial equality, gender equality in the church. I grew up charismatic and female pastors and my mom co-owns my parents' company. And I'm around, been, I was raised by strong women and, 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 and our company reflected that our staff has always been majority women, women in leadership, equal pay. Uh, if you look at our magazine, the voices we gave our platform to, uh, of diverse voices, um, uh, justice issues that we would raise and advocate for, I mean, that that trickled down from the top. I mean, that was because I'm passionate about those issues. And so last fall, when stories were told that painted me in a light of having racial bias or gender bias or things like that, it was it was almost like uh, shocking to me. Like, I didn't know what to do and I couldn't like defend myself. Uh, you can't argue with the Internet, you know. And so um, I decided to go away. I decided to handle this in a private way. I decided to... Um, try to learn from this. I tried to honestly, um, whether I succeeded or not, try to set an example of humility and leadership and teachability. And so I went on a sabbatical. Um, we uh, immediately um, you know, got into counseling. I started talking to a lot of leaders about what was going on. Um, the thing that, was my, that opened my eyes was I probably the through line in all of it was an issue of unhealth and probably um, I wasn't a good boss and you know I can sit there and explain all the reasons why I probably got to that point you know starting the company on 24 by myself no money always struggling always hustling and always stressed out I mean for 20 years 
you're just not always your best. Usually on payday, I was more stressed than other days. And, and I understand that the, that I did, you know, I was not sensitive to those issues and I wasn't. And, um, I learned a lot through the process. I was given a lot of books I should read and I learned a lot through that, through conversations and others, but really what I wanted to do is get to the core issue. I didn't want to just treat symptoms. I wanted to treat the disease. And I was just unhealthy as a leader. I was a toxic leader. I, I just was not, I wasn't my best. And so in counseling, we've been working on that a lot. Um, been, um, you know, through a lot of ups and downs over the last six months, like there was definitely a couple months there where I just was ready to walk away. I mean, it just was like this, the world hates me. This is not worth fighting for. Maybe 20 years was a good run, you know? And, um, I would say going into the holidays, some national leaders, uh, reached out out of concern and, um, there was one week in particular where I, there were five different leaders that all texted me or called me and said that the Lord woke them up with me on their heart and they were praying for me and that they felt like they needed to reach out and tell me that God's not done with relevant yet. And God's not done with me yet. And that I need to embrace this, but I also need to fight for this. And so that kind of got me out of you know, a downward spiral and help me kind of pivot and say, okay, Lord, well, if you're not done and I want it to look really different, I need it to look really different. I can't do it like I was trying to do it before. Um, the company had become unsustainable. Frankly, we had bitten off more than we could chew and we were drowning every day. And that was really hard. Um, so around the holidays, I started to kind of pray about and dream about like, well, okay, if knowing everything I know now, what would I do differently? Um, I, if I was launching relevant from scratch in 2020, knowing everything, not just everything that happened, um, and my mistakes in leadership, but also to the business changes in media, we had the same mission. We want to reach a generation for Christ and we wanted to challenge a, a generation. What, how would I do it? I probably in 2020 wouldn't be mailing paper to people's houses if I'm trying to reach 25 year olds, you know, and, uh, it just started to look at things with fresh eyes and we had to make some hard decisions. I mean, uh, subscribers know, like we said last week, officially, we had to put the print magazine on hiatus. It had become unsustainable financially um, through this last season. And, um, and while that's sad, it was something we'd done for 17 years. Um, it doesn't mean that we can't take that type of content and that type of mission to other platforms. And, and so we started to dream up, well, what does that look like? You know? And so I continued counseling. I continued, um, you know, uh, every week, I mean, talking to countless leaders and mentors and, um, through that process started to put together a plan for life and for relevant. Uh, rebuilding this company from scratch. One of the things that I didn't want to do again was run this thing alone. I didn't want to be out there on my own. I needed covering. I needed help. And um, so I realized I needed a board. Now we're a privately held for-profit company with fewer than 10 staff members. We're tiny, um, but uh, I needed a board. And so uh, I reached out and we we created a an executive board, which for our kind of company is, is essentially an advisory board. 
Um, I want it to be a diverse board. I wanted to not be in name only or bureaucratic. I wanted it to be people who cared about relevant, who were national leaders and who cared about me and could help me be the best leader I could be, but also help relevant missionally go to another level. And uh, we took a few months to put that board together because there's a lot of conversations and a lot of prayer. And we introduced that board in our update this week. And I'm really excited about them. It's chaired by, uh, Tessie Guell DeVore, who uh, is the president of Bible Media Group. She was the first uh, female president of the Spanish Evangelical Press Association. Um, I've known Tessie for years. I served on the board at Oral Roberts University with her. She's an amazing leader. Um, we also have Dr. Darius Daniels, who's pastor of Change Church um, here in Orlando and in New Jersey. But um, he's Princeton Seminary, and he is one of the wisest people I know in all aspects of life, even outside of the pulpit. Um, he's um, an amazing leader. Um, we have Christine Kane, who everybody knows, founder of A21 um, Justice Organization uh, with her husband, Nick, and also Propel Women. Um, Christine Kane is a hero of mine, and I'm honored that she's serving on our board. Dr. David Dukason, who's a pastor in Charlotte for the last 15 years and really got involved in um, racial justice issues in Charlotte of um, gentrifying neighborhoods and, and being uh, an advocate for interracial relationships and stuff. And he's actually writing a book about that topic and he's on the board at Southeastern university and I've known him for years as well. And then also Mr. Jesse Carey is going to be on our executive board. Jesse, I don't mean to spill the beans here, bud, but um, no, over this no. last month, you've entered a new season of your career and um, are no longer on staff at Relevant. And That's before right. everybody starts sobbing and hitting stop on their <clears throat> podcasts, during that transition, um, Jesse talked to me about his heart for Relevant and that he wants to continue to stay connected. And so what we've worked out is that he's going to stay on the podcast. Everybody can exhale right now. Jesse's going to stay on the podcast and he's also going to serve on our executive board. And I love that because nobody has probably been more influential in relevance mission and voice over the last 15 years than Jesse. And to keep that relationship long-term where he can, he knows the good and the bad and the ugly and the challenges of this thing. And so from a board seat, being able to advise and help and even speak to the other board members about kind of our day to day and help me see the force for the trees um, uh, as he's now outside of our ecosystem, I think will be a huge thing. So those are the five people on our executive board. And with their help, you know, I kind of submitted some challenges to them, you know, over the last couple of months. I mean, <laughs> America is in a difficult situation right now. You know, it's an odd time to be coming back as a business. And, and so they helped me kind of navigate some decisions we had to make as a company and help set things up. One of the things that the board is going to do other than just be there for me is they're going to be there for the staff as well. Something I learned um, based on the stories that were told last fall is that we're small and we don't have like an HR department or anything like that. We're a tiny team. And so there were times where there was something that happened with a staff member where they didn't feel they had anybody, you know, they were frustrated or offended or, or something was off and they didn't feel like they had anybody they could go to to help solve it. The board is going to sit in that seat for our staff that if anything ever happens moving forward where they don't feel like staff leadership, you know, su sufficiently addressed it, um, they, they have access to our board and they can talk to our board about it. And our board can talk to me and we can figure it out together. And I think, honestly, if I'm reading 
a lot of what was said last fall through the lens of how we're going to operate moving forward, almost none of it would have been an issue. None of it would have been solved then. You know what I mean? And I'm really excited about that covering. I'm excited about I'm excited about the fact that they're going to be involved. I mean, board members call me literally every day. I mean, it's like they are they have rolled up their sleeves and this is not a uh, board for show. It's a board of people who deeply care. Um, you know, and as we're talking about that, we're talking about what kind of a company to be where I could be a better leader, where we could have more margin, where we didn't bite off more than we could chew. We weren't always redlining. We aren't, weren't always going too fast. And so I started, like I mentioned, dreaming up a new era of relevant. And, you know, I, I started to dream again. I got to be honest with you. It's been exciting. And um, we put together a business plan where we are excited for you all to see it over the coming six months. Um, a lot of changes, a lot of good changes. You all are podcast listeners. There's going to be a lot more podcasts coming from Relevant. We are excited about podcasting and we are doubling down on it. Um, there's going to be a new relevantmagazine.com launching in the next week or two. We're very excited about that. Um, it's going to bring more of that magazine level uh, journalism and content, as well as the daily stuff that you love from us. But it, it's going to have a lot more on the spiritual growth side. We're launching a Deeper Walk daily devotional series. We're partnering with ministries and organizations to create content that we couldn't create on our own. Uh, we just launched a web uh, a podcast called Signs of Life with American Awakening, which is an organization out of Boston wanting to spur a spiritual awakening in this generation. And we're going to be doing uh, content each week on our website with them. And and uh, we're partnering with the Lumo Project, a Bible engagement project. Uh, they're, they're the ones bringing Deeper Walk, uh, making Deeper Walk possible. You know, I, I, I want to be very clear to everybody listening and have been concerned or asking questions about how I'm doing. This is not a me on a ship with a big old mission accomplished banner behind me moment. I mean, this isn't like, hey, I'm back. Um, everything's fine. This is me midstream. Um, the board has challenged me that this is the time for me to come back. Um, just like right before the holidays, I got unsolicited calls from leaders saying, God's not done with you and not done with relevant over the last month. I've been getting a lot of outreach from leaders that I hadn't talked to in a long time saying, now's the time for relevant and for you to come back. And I brought that to the board and said, what do you all think? And they said, absolutely. Now's the time. And so I'm coming back to work. Um, working on a lot of the new, um, focusing on the launching and the partnerships and the things like that. And I will come back to the podcast because I love it. And um, next week, uh, the Realm Podcast will even be getting a reboot as well with a new cast. And I'll be coming back and the, and the permanent cast members, I think you all will be very excited about. Um, but it's going to be a new era. And all I ask for people who have been concerned or even skeptical hearing my voice is just, I ask for the grace to walk this out. And, you know, like I said, I just, I can't snap my fingers and make everything right. This is a long-term process of healing and restoration and reconciliation. And um, I'm still in weekly counseling and I'm still, you know, talking to mentors and advisors and leaders every day. And I feel like I'm growing every day and um, I'm going to continue to pursue that. And, you know, uh, I don't know what the future will hold as far as like how work will go or how different it'll be. And, you know, I'll, I'm very wary of slipping back into old habits or stress patterns. And, um, and I've been talking to the people around me about that. And so hopefully with that covering, I'll be able to 
move forward in a healthy way and continue this process of growth and, and healing, um, both for me and for the people that were hurt. I am deeply sorry for hurting people that were uh, close to me. I'm sorry for hurting people here to the friends that feel like we're friends from the podcast relationship and stuff that were concerned about what they heard about me. It's, um, it was a very difficult season to walk through and very eye opening and very humbling. And I appreciate everybody's grace and staying connected with us as we've, you know, tried to move forward. So there you go, y'all. I don't know. You know what? I have some PR friends who are going to be very mad at me about what I just said. <laughs> like I probably said way too much, but whatever. That's the truth. You know, Ty- Tyler, I can't, uh, you know, obviously I can't speak for you, but you, you know, you and I have been doing this, uh, you know, we've, we've had lots of people that have been very gracious and cool about, you know, we've been able to do this podcast with a lot of interesting personalities and it's been, uh, fun being able to, you know, try to, um, keep things going but it's also been i know tyler i like i said i can't speak for you but i know it's been uh, a challenging time but um you know it's also something where um i really think it's an opportunity to uh, uh, address things and um you know listen to f- feedback and, and like cameron like you were saying be humble and be teachable and you know i you know being out of the day to day uh, for a couple of weeks now, like Cameron, you, you had mentioned me kind of transitioning off of being a, a full-time staff member. Um, you know, I wanted to still be on the podcast and I wanted to serve on the board because I love relevant. I love Cameron. I love the listeners and our readers. And I, I love my colleagues and I love my former colleagues. And I think, you know, we have been afforded an opportunity that a lot of people don't get. And that's another chance. And, I am deeply appreciative of that. And I also, you know, for people who are skeptical, you know, the only thing I would ask is just for time. And, you know, uh, a lot of things behind the scenes, you know, Cameron seeking counseling and, and advisement from a lot of different leaders. And, um, you know, we want to in, institute institutional changes to, you, you know, and that's part of what this board is and, and giving our staff access to them. Um, you know, and I'm sure they're, I'm sure, listen, we're all people and we're going to make mistakes, but we want to try to correct patterns of the past and create a more healthy institution that, you know, day to day reflects the values that we've tried to represent editorially for, for a long time. And so, you know, for people that are still listening, we, we're really appreciative of you sticking with us. For people that are skeptical, we say that's okay. Just give us some time. Let us try to prove that uh, you know these changes are, are substantive and that our institution is going to run differently. And uh, I'm excited for what's for what's next. And you know, it's 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 one of those things where um, you know it, it. We like I said, we have an opportunity that a lot of people don't have, and that's that's to kind of get a chance to try to try to correct things and do things differently. And I'm, I'm really excited about what we have next. Tyler, did you have anything you kind of wanted to add just about, you know, the, the, the season, you know, you and I have kind of come out of and also kind of working with camera behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you expressed a lot of my thoughts really well, Jesse, I, the people who've stuck with us, I'm really grateful for you. It has been a challenge and, and, uh, 
been a lot of people who've been very encouraging in the middle of that challenge. I really appreciate that. There's been people who've been uh, skeptical, who've been concerned, who've been critical and and uh, tried to try, we've tried to listen. I hope you feel heard. I really do. We haven't been able to obviously individually reach out to every single person, but but I hope you feel like it's been an attempt on our part to hear those concerns out and and to accept them in good faith because we've really tried. Um, when when Cameron reached out to me and said he had talked to the board and told me about the board and and their conversations and said that they they were feeling like it was time for him to come back i in writing expressed some of my thoughts to you about that cameron and and uh, we had a lot of long conversations about that and uh what you told me is what you you wanted to come back and and for me to to watch and see what happened to to see what what the changes have been like and and uh, that is a that is a chance and an opportunity that we're in right now and that i'm willing to that i'm willing to do and I hope that everybody else who's listening out there is willing to do the same thing. Um, and we are still going to be listening. Like you alluded to Cameron, we are yep. still going, this isn't a mission accomplished moment for any of us, for, for Cameron or for us as an, as an organization. Uh, we, we want to continue. There's no finish line for right. the relevant mission. Right. Um, and, uh, and so we, we will continue to listen in whatever ways that, we can and and uh we hope and pray that uh literally hope and pray uh, along with you all that that mission uh will continue to go forward with all of you i appreciate you guys and uh looking forward to this new era and the next season a lot and uh i hope that everybody else is too uh, i think that you'll be i hope that you'll be pleased with what you see all right. That, I think that'll wrap it up for this week. Hey, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, thanks to Ray Chang and Dr. Michelle Reyes for joining us. You can check out all of their work at the AACC over at Asian American Christian Collaborative.com. Asian American Christian Collaborative.com. You can also sign their statement over there, and I would encourage you to do that. Uh, and with that, I think we'll wrap it up. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Chandler Strang. I'm Rainstick McGee. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you all next week. for listening to The Relevant Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Check out other shows from The Relevant Podcast Network in the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com. And while you're there, browse exclusive podcast merchandise at our online store. Make sure to subscribe to Relevant Magazine. Info is available at relevantmagazine.com forward slash subscribe. It's like half cotton now. Relevant Podcast Network. Everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14. So people currently listening to comedy podcasts and people listening to self-help podcasts and people listening to true crime podcasts. 
who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts. The point is, everyone, new and existing customers, ask how to get the new iPhone 14 on us with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply.